Revolt is the right of the people. Pretty strong words, huh? Those are the words of philosopher John Locke. This is the Historical USA podcast. If you are new or returning to the podcast, welcome. Here we discuss the people and places that made America. I hope you will consider to subscribing and following this podcast as we journey the road to revolution. In today's podcast, we are going to talk about the Enlightenment movement of the 18th century. Throughout this series, we will discuss many of the people that influenced a call for independence and the enlightened ideas that changed colonists' worldviews, expressed and influenced others with their enlightened ideas, and created out of those ideas a new nation on the principles of freedom and liberty. I thought long and hard for three years about how I wanted to start this series. I first thought I would start with the Mayflower landing at Plymouth Rock. But then, if I start there, I should start at Jamestown. If I started at Jamestown, I needed to at least talk about Roanoke. Or maybe I should go back a little further and talk about the Age of Exploration. Should I talk about Dutch settlements? Should I talk about the French settlements? The Spanish? The Russians? Should I make this whole first season about the colonization of North America? Do I take this back to Columbus who sailed the ocean blue in 1492? And then your perception of time kicks in. 1492 to 1776 is a 286-year difference. That is 40 years longer than America has been in existence. The people of the late 18th century would have less of an understanding of Columbus than we do today. Now, the Mayflower is a little closer, settling in America in 1620, but that also is 156 years until the United States declares independence. That would be like us in the year 2022 examining 1866. A lot can change in 156 years. And in the 156 years since the landing of the Mayflower, the English colonies have grown. They have begun establishing their own cultures, customs, governments, cities, and economies. Their issues have changed since the beginning of Plymouth Rock. So I realized, if we want to understand why the English colonies declared independence in 1776, we need to examine the events that shaped the founding generation. Now, if you had a moderately good history teacher in school, you may have had a class or two throughout the year that touched on the Enlightenment. I was lucky to have European history offered in my high school many years ago. It was my favorite class. My teacher mainly focused on the philosophes of France, and that made sense as in that class, we were studying the Enlightenment to discuss the influence it had on the French Revolution, not the American Revolution. We read a lot of Montesquieu, Rousseau, Diderot, and Voltaire the writer of Candide, an absolute classic. One that as a teenager, I found witty and pretty funny. But as I got older, you see, the satire Voltaire paints of human nature, war, greed, government, and abuse became very ironic. 
and not so much funny anymore. But what was the Enlightenment? And what was its impact on the American colonies? The period of Enlightenment begins in Europe nearly a century before the American Revolution, around 1685, and lasts till about 1815. During this time, multiple philosophers emerge in Britain and France and other European countries. They propose that social reform could change societies everywhere, which gained traction among restless and dissatisfied citizens of the American colonies. As we move through this podcast series, you will see these enlightened philosophies and ideas become more popular and vocalized as tension with the British continue to be strained. The Enlightenment was notable for giving the everyday man a sense of empowerment. Colonists realized that the power is in themselves, not in an aristocratic elite. In this episode, we are going to discuss natural rights and the social contract, and how it inspired an age of American Enlightenment, and to push for change and eventually independence. Now, the social contract is one of the cornerstones of the American system of government. It is the idea that the state exists only to serve the will of the people, who are the source of the state's political power. The people have the option of granting or denying this power. Now, the origins of the social contract can be found in the writings of Greek philosopher Plato from the 4th and 5th centuries BCE. In 1651, English philosopher Thomas Hobbes would expound on Plato's idea of the social contract in his work Leviathan. It is important to note that Hobbes writes Leviathan as a response to the English Civil War. According to Hobbes' social contract theory, humans made an unwritten pact with one another to get out of a violent state of nature, i.e. war and tribal conflict. Thomas Hobbes believed that the social contract theory was essentially to the development of society. Humans could never progress beyond the simple day-to-day search for food and survival without the social contract. There would be no reason to develop agriculture or industry if your hard work was simply taken away by a warring tribe or a competing faction. He writes, in such conditions, there is no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain and consequently no cultivation, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as required much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society. Hobb defines society as a population and a sovereign authority to which all individuals in that society voluntarily give up some rights in exchange for protection. It kind of makes me think of serfdom. The serfs work the land of the lord or the master, and in return, the serfs get protection and security. As a result, individuals are the authors of all decisions made by the sovereign. He writes, He that complaineth of injury from his sovereign complaineth that who of he himself is the author, and therefore ought not to accuse any man but himself, no, nor himself of injury, because to do injury to one's self is impossible. There is no power of the people, or by the people in that. There is no talk of liberty. 
For Hobbes, the sovereign controls every aspect of your life, military, judicial, civil, and even religious authority. It sounds like the founders read Hobbes and warned us against the reliance on the state for our good. Benjamin Franklin warns in his memoirs, They who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserves neither liberty nor safety. Luckily for us, the philosophical aspect of a social contract doesn't end there. It evolves into a different theory of human nature from John Locke. Often called the father of liberalism, English physician and philosopher John Locke laid the foundation of political liberalism and modern philosophical empiricism. Empiricism means a method of study relying on empirical evidence, which includes things you've experienced, stuff you see and you touch. Empiricism is based on facts, evidence, and research. It is also the theory that all knowledge is derived from sense experience. Benjamin Franklin was a big believer in this. John Locke's theory of the natural law ensures liberty for every human being. He also argues that natural law was more ethical than all man-made laws and governments because each person had inherent rights such as life, liberty, and property. Sound familiar? John Locke's work will have a profound impact on the Enlightenment, and his writing, The Two Treatises of Government, is regarded as one of the most influential texts on the call for American independence. For some context, John Locke's first treatise of government was written to refute Robert Filmer's manuscript Patriarcha, or The Natural Power of Kings, written in 1680. Now, Robert Filmer was a political theorist whose arguments supported absolute monarchy and the divine rights of kings. Today, Filmer's arguments seem incredibly antiquated and not at all the norm in government. Even those that still hold to a monarchy, such as Great Britain, have reduced the crown to mostly a symbolic entity. In order to defend the patriarchal rule of kings, Filmer looks at biblical male figures such as Adam and Abraham. He believes that everyone, whether a slave or king, was born into their station for a reason. So if you are born a slave, you will stay a slave. If you are born poor, you will stay poor. It doesn't sound like that philosophy gives people much hope. Luckily, <laughs> Locke believed that God did not create men to be slaves, but that they were born with certain rights, certain freedoms. And if men were born with freedoms and endowed with natural rights, then no tyrannical king or ruler has the power to bind them. Locke also refutes Filmer's biblical argument and states, quote, Scripture or reason, I am sure, do not anywhere say so, notwithstanding the noise of divine right, as if divine authority hath subjected us to the unlimited will of another. Locke will publish his work in 1689. A year before, in the Glorious Revolution of 1688, England's Parliament disposed of King James II. Parliament then offered the throne to King William and Queen Mary. This is important to Locke because he considers the new monarchy lawful because the people consented to it, asserting and defending, quote, their just and natural rights. Locke wrote, to establish the throne of our great restorer, our present King William, to make good his title in the consent of the people, which being that the only one 
of all lawful governments. He has more fully and clearly than any prince in Christendom, and to justify to the world the people of England, whose love of their just and natural rights, with their resolution to preserve them, saved the nation when it was on the very brink of slavery and ruin. Locke's second treatise of government places the power in the hands of the people and argues for the people to establish their own government. In the first few chapters of the second treatise, Locke discusses the state of nature in the social contract. Locke defends nature as a state of equality in which no one has power over another, and everyone is free to do whatever they want. He emphasizes, however, that this liberty does not imply permission to abuse others, and that natural law exists even in nature. These are universal laws. Locke's ideas about government by the consent of the people and for the good of the people are based primarily on natural equality. After all, if one person is naturally superior, he may claim the right to rule absolutely and act solely for his own benefit, i.e. a tyrant. Locke wrote, To understand political power right and derive it from its original, we must consider what state all men are naturally in, and that is a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit, within the bounds of nature, without asking leave or depending upon the will of another man. A state also of equality, wherein all the power and jurisdiction is reciprocal, no one having another. Locke also argues that because the right of the governed comes from the people, this also grants the right of the people to modify or even replace their governments. But if a long train of abuses, provocations, and artifices, all tending the same way, make the design visible to the people, and they cannot but feel what they lie under, and see whether they are going, it is not to be wondered that they should then rouse themselves and endeavor to put the rule into such hands which may secure to them the ends of which government was at first erected. Does that sound familiar? Thomas Jefferson essentially writes the same thing in the Declaration of Independence, saying, But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. Locke also writes a lot about the right to property. Every man, according to Locke, is the owner of himself and his own labor. Additionally, he makes the case that every man has right to private ownership of land that he has worked hard to develop. Locke even suggests that people who own private property are obeying God's command, writing, God and his reason commanded him to subdue the earth, i.e. improve it for the benefit of life, and therein lay out something upon it that was his own, his labor. He that in obedience to this command of God subdued, tilled, and sowed any part of it, thereby annexed to it something that was his property, which another had no title to, nor could without injury take from him. This reminds me of James Otis Jr.'s arguments against the writ of assistance in 1761. The writ of assistance allowed colonial courts to authorize officers of the British crown to enter and search any premises they deemed necessary. Kind of like a warrant today. Now there's quite a bit of smuggling going on in Boston, and the British used writs of assistance to enforce trade and navigation laws that were being previously ignored. 
James Otis Jr. was a lawyer representing a few of these merchants in Boston, and his arguments against these writs were influenced by the ideas of Locke on property. Otis famously gave a four-hour speech attacking the legality of the writs, famously saying a man's house is his castle. Otis would lose the case, but as John Adams would say, then and there the child of independence was born. Adams believed that Otis's speech was extremely persuasive in convincing the American colonists to call for independence. Locke believed that a branch government prevented one person or group from being too powerful, similarly to a monarch. Locke does not argue for any form of government, but whatever form the commonwealth is under, the ruling power ought to be governed by declared and received laws, and not by extemporary dictates and undetermined resolution. He argues for a separation of powers and makes a distinction between an executive branch to enforce the law like a monarchy, for example, and a legislative branch that derives its power from the people. As the words and writings of enlightened philosophers reach the shores of the American colonies, there is an age of American enlightenment. We will see an age of education reform, a change in the way schools like Yale and the College of William and Mary teach, they will introduce subjects like science, anatomy, math, philosophy into their institutions. There will be new American models of higher learning established, such as the King's College of New York or present-day Columbia and the University of Pennsylvania. In 1743, Benjamin Franklin establishes the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. Many of its members... Thomas Jefferson, John Dickinson, John Adams, Thomas Paine, James Madison, just to name a few, were fire starters in calling for independence. They would write pamphlets and essays, many of which we will discuss in this podcast. They lay out to the people that they have natural rights that cannot and should not be dictated by a tyrannical king. We will see how attitudes towards slavery change. It will not happen overnight, but it is the founding generation that America will see its first leaders of abolition. They will begin to see a practice that was acceptable and natural for many centuries before them and come to recognize that the ownership of slaves strips a person of the natural rights given to them by God and that it is evil. Benjamin Franklin will plead in his last address to Congress in 1789, saying, Slavery is such an atrocious debasement of human nature that its very extirpation, if not performed with solicitous care, may sometimes open a source of serious evil. It is the founding generation that will begin to manumit their enslaved people. Benjamin Franklin, John Dickinson, Caesar Rodney, William Whipple, and Benjamin Rush, to name a few, will break the chain of generational ownership of slavery in their families. The founding generation will start abolitionist organizations such as the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society, whose members include Benjamin Franklin and Rush, and the New York Manumission Society, founded by John Jay and Alexander Hamilton. The northern states will ratify the Constitution either as free states or with legislation passed that will see slavery abolished in a few years. Slave owners such as Thomas Jefferson and George Mason will call the practice of slavery abhorrent 
Jefferson wrote that maintaining slaves was like holding a wolf by the ear, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go, fearing that emancipating the enslaved would start a war that places the American experiment in jeopardy. We will discuss the issue of slavery more as we talk about the revolution, as we talk about the Constitution, and as we move closer to the Civil War during this podcast. We will see abolitionists will frequently call on Locke's words on natural rights to push for the end of slavery in America, but we will also see slave owners defending their right of property, invoking Locke's second treatise of government. Again, it is important to understand that as we move through this first season, these enlightened ideas are only going to grow. They are going to get louder. And I am excited to share some of these ideas with you. Now comment below if you have a favorite philosopher that I had not mentioned in this podcast. And thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Please don't forget to give this video a thumbs up if you are watching on YouTube. If not, give me a follow on whichever podcast platform you are listening to. Now, to help this podcast grow, please share it with a friend and follow me on social media. I love hearing from you guys. Next week, we will discover another movement happening at the same time as the Enlightenment, and that is the First Great Awakening. Now, a lot of historians and educators like to lump them together, but we are going to disconnect them and we are going to take a look at how the Great Awakening was different than the Enlightenment and how it had a different impact on the American Revolution. I will see you on the next episode. Bye.